today we are in a section at the beginning of chapter 6 where Jesus is addressing three religious practices. And what he's going to address is how these religious practices can be mispracticed, practiced in a wrong way, and in what God's intent and his heart is for us in the practice of these. Last week we saw the first one, giving. And as a pastor, if you ever want to preach on something that you can make many people in your congregation feel bad about, it's giving. This week, we'll be preaching on prayer and fasting. And again, as a pastor, these are areas that we all look at and we all go, I struggle. Or maybe you struggle at some season. Maybe you've had periods of struggle and these can be easily misunderstood. So I pray that as we go through the passage today, that you would open yourself up to what God's word wants to say to you about how you practice prayer, about how you practice fasting, and what God's intent, his good, holy intent is for these practices. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 18. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. If not, the words will be on the screen behind me and you can follow along there. Hear the word of our Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray that your father who is in to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. This is the word of God for the people of God. 
And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word declares that all men are like grass and all our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. And Lord, may this be the word that is faithfully preached today. Unless you speak, nothing of any significance will be spoken here today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus starts this section on prayer, connecting it to giving another spiritual practice. These were three of the prominent spiritual practices of the Jewish people, giving, praying, and fasting. He starts it with the word, and when. Notice he says, when you pray. There's an assumption here. He is speaking to his disciples, to his followers. And for the followers of Jesus Christ, the assumption is this, that you pray. He doesn't say, and if you pray. He says, when you pray. It's assumed that the Christian, we are a praying people, and he tells us that we are to pray. He assumes it. When you pray, and he says, a warning. Here's the warning. You must not be like the hypocrites. Now, if someone were to call any of us a hypocrite, we'd probably quickly realize that we've been insulted and feel it deeply. We would want to defend ourselves. That word hypocrite is not a positive word. The, the word in the Greek literally means to come up under, but, but the idea and what it's commonly translated is is an actor. A hypocrite, the word, it's a word used for an actor on a stage. If any of you have ever been to a theater to watch a play maybe, there's a common picture or graphic that is placed outside a theater. It looks like this. It's a face that is smiling and a face that is frowning. Two faces. And when you see this in many parts of the world, you know this. That's a theater. That's where people come on stage and they pretend to play a role. It's not really who they are. It's not their true selves. They're stepping into a part and acting it out. Now, this picture here, these are masks from a Greek theater. When I looked this up, there was lots of masks. Most of them were quite terrifying to look at. These were two of the lesser terrifying looking masks. And you can see in these masks, what they would do is when they had a Greek play, they would put on a mask and this would portray the emotion that they were trying to say they felt. They would play a character. They would play a part. They were acting. So when he speaks of the hypocrites, these are people who treat prayer, who treat giving, who treat fasting like they're on a stage. They want everybody to see it. They want to draw attention to it. And what they're doing is they're putting on a mask. They're putting on a face. The face is, we want people to see that we're religious, that we're godly, that we're so godly we'll sacrifice 
That we're so godly, we'll pray long, wordy prayers to impress people. They want people to see these things rather than their true selves. You don't truly see an actor when they're wearing a mask. You just see the part they're playing. That's what he's saying. Do not be like these hypocrites. Here's why. He says, for they love. So there's something the hypocrite loves. Here's what it is. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. They have a love. It doesn't say that the, they love to talk with God. They love to converse with the God of the universe. They love to speak to Him and draw near to Him and, and know that He is God. Know what they love is they love being on the street corner, praying in a very showy way where everybody goes, look, that person must be very religious. Or praying in the synagogue where people go, look, they love this. Now notice this. Jesus is not condemning praying in the synagogue. And he is not condemning praying on the street corner. He's condemning loving praying in these places to be seen by others. It's their motivation. Their motivation is not to worship God. It's not to pray to God and call out to Him and connect with Him. Their motivation is that other people see them. That word for seen, the first three letters in the Greek are our first four letters in the English word for theater. Again, they love to come and be on the stage as if they're putting on a show. They're in a theater showing others a part that they're playing that isn't truly who they are. They want to be seen. Now, it's easy for us to look at this, but probably every Christian at some point has fallen victim to the temptation and the sin of doing religious activity, not primarily to connect with God and to praise and worship Him, but that you're seen by others. There's all kinds of things that we like to be seen in our world. If a young man is interested in a woman, he'll do things that'll get him seen by her, to, to draw his, her attention toward him. When people go to uh, interview for a job or they want to get a job, they'll do things to have that potential employer notice them. So we'll all do things to be seen. But here in prayer, the question is, who are you being seen by? Do you want to be seen by God and connect with Him? Or do you want to be seen by others? In our day and time, there's probably no greater place that we see young people and even many older people seeking to be seen than on social media. Could be YouTube, could be Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or any number of social media uh, venues where a person goes, I want to be seen, I, I want to be noticed in a certain way. And you'll see people betraying themselves all sorts of ways. They may want people to see their political views. But it's more than their political views. They want to be noticed. They may want people to see what their life's like. 
Some want people to see their religiosity and how, how uh, faithful they are. So out there, this is a, a great struggle for many. I'll tell you, even for myself, I had never been on social media in any kind of real significant way until I moved here. And I realized I have family and friends who like to keep up with life here. So I'll put things on social media, but I realize there's such a great danger. Such a great danger in that of, of doing things to be seen and have others see you. And he's saying, Jesus is saying here, they're praying that they might be seen. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So there's a reward. We'll talk about that near the end of the message. But they're not getting any greater reward than having somebody notice them praying. Somebody see them praying. That is their reward. Now, Jesus gave a negative example. Now he's going to give the positive in verse 6. But when you pray, go into a room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The, the Greek word here for room could also be translated closet. Some will speak of a prayer closet. And the idea, it's where you store your treasure. So you would go somewhere for your treasure and they go there to pray. Now, during the time that this was written, very few people would have had a home large enough to have a room dedicated to prayer. So the idea that you have an actual room in your home dedicated to prayer, while there's nothing wrong with that, very few people at this time would have had that. That The prayer closet, many believe, was a different idea. You see, Jewish men would wear what was called a talit. It was like a, a covering that they would cover their head with. It was called a prayer cloth. And when they would pray, they would take their talit and they would close the door of the talit and cover themselves. I've got a picture of it. You can see it here. This is a Jewish man praying. Now, some say that may have been what Jesus was referring to when he said your prayer closet, that you go here and you pray. But regardless if Jesus is talking about a literal room in your house or if he's telling these uh, Jewish followers of his that have trusted in him to pray like this, the point is pray in a way that it's you connecting with God. You're praying to Him. It's as if it's a secret. You're not, letting, you're not doing it for show and for other people to see and other people to praise you. No, you're doing it to connect with your Father. And it says that when you pray this way, your Father, who sees in secret, He will reward you. Now, Jesus is going to give another negative example followed by a positive example. Here's the next negative example about prayer. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard by many words. Now, how many of us have been praying with a group of people and we can sense someone is just saying words. There's no heart behind it. There's no connection with God. It's just a bunch of religious language and religious jargon and they're carrying on and on and on. And the truth of the matter, we probably all experience that. Now I venture to say many of us 
myself included, have had times of being guilty of that. Times of praying with, with large words or, or words just to draw attention or to make you sound more religious. That's what he's saying. They're just praying with these big words and heaping up ideas and they would repeat them over and over again. And Jesus says we are not to pray like that. In verse 8, he says, do not be like them. He's not condemning long prayers. Jesus prays a very long prayer the night before he dies called the high priestly prayer. It takes up a few chapters in the Gospel of John. So there's nothing wrong with the length of a prayer. What he's talking about is praying in such a manner that you think the words will somehow earn you favor with God and draw attention to yourselves where they'll see you. No, he's saying do not be like that. Your father, get this, your father knows what you need before you ask. When you go to pray, God is not surprised by your needs. He already knows what you need. And some would say, well, why pray if God already knows what I need? Can't he just uh, know that and hear the cry of my heart and that be good enough? We miss the point of prayer. You see, sometimes we can be guilty of treating prayer like a primary place where we go to petition God. That's the primary purpose. God, give me. God, bless me. God, get on my plan. God, do my will. Do what I want. No prayer is about connecting with God Almighty. God, you are holy. You are righteous. You are good and you're pure. And I want to be in fellowship with you. I want to connect with you. I want to talk with you. So you go and you don't pray like this. You come and you can bring your petitions before God, but he already knows them. It's like a young child coming to a parent. That young child may come to the parent to ask for a number of things. But typically young children, the primary thing they want to do is be with their parent, to connect to be with him. And that's what he's saying here. We come to God to pray. And here's what he gives us in verse 9. Pray then like this. Now Jesus is going to give a prayer. It's the most famous prayer, I believe, in the Bible. We call it the Lord's Prayer, though that title is a slight bit misleading. Because this is not a prayer that the Lord necessarily needed to pray. This would be better for us to call it the model prayer, an example prayer, that we treat this prayer as an example of how we're to approach God, what we're to pray about, and how we're to pray. This is a very short prayer, 65 words. Yet in those 65 words, Jesus teaches us to pray in a way that connects with God and covers all our needs, honors him. So it's a great model for us to follow. I remember as a young man, I, I used to be in a group and we would close this group by praying this prayer every week. And it could easily become just words you say, just like when we sing here on Sunday mornings. The songs we sing, you can just mouth them, just say them. Or you can engage those words and you can worship God. You can pray this prayer and connect with God Almighty. In fact, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them something, 
They don't ask him to teach them to preach. They don't say, Jesus, teach us to prophesy. Jesus, teach us to heal. Teach us to cast out demons. Teach us to worship. Teach us to build a big ministry. Teach us to lead a family. The only thing the disciples ever say to Jesus to teach them is to pray. And in Luke chapter 11, they say, Jesus... Teach us to pray. They had seen Jesus' prayer life and the power of his prayer life. And they say, teach us to pray like you do. And Jesus repeats word for word this prayer right here. Exact prayer, word for word, given about two years later to his disciples when they've watched his ministry. They've watched what he's done. And they say, the thing we need to learn from you is how to pray. So these words... These are the words of Jesus to us as a church, to us as the people of the church, the body of Christ, teaching you and I how to pray. And some of us have been in church a long time and we start to assume things. Of course I know how to pray. Well, we can easily be mistaken and we can easily pray our prayers that don't connect with the heart of God and miss a relationship and an honoring of him. So let's hear this. I've got five points for you in this prayer. They're in your bulletin. You can write them down if you want. The first one is we're going to see God, uh, God's person. God's person. He starts out this prayer with our Father in heaven. Now that, that term, our Father, in the Old Testament, the word father is used 15 times, but it's never used with a pronoun attached to it that is personal. My father, our father. Old Testament never says that. Old Testament speaks of God as Elohim, the strong one. El Shaddai, the mighty one. Yahweh. I am that I am. But here he's saying our father and the word for father here, it's the idea of daddy, papa. It's a personal word for God, an intimate word for God. God is our father. He's in heaven. You see, God hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. What's changed is our relationship with him through Christ. We can now call him our Father. And notice this. This prayer is a corporate prayer. We can pray in many ways. You can go in secret and pray by yourself. But you can also pray in corporate with other believers. As a church, we gather to pray. And we pray together during our service. And we pray to our Father. And he says, hallowed be your name. That's holy. God is holy. He's separated. So the first thing he prays is about God's person, recognizing who God is. A great model for us as we pray, we start off by recognizing, you're God, I'm not. You're other than me. You're holy. You're righteous. I'm sinful. You're my God because of Christ. I can call you father. I've been adopted into the family. Second thing, we see God's purpose. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is God's purpose. We pray God's purpose over our lives. God, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will 
If my will is done, this isn't going to turn out very well. I need God's will to be done here on earth. When we talk about the will of God, Scripture speaks of it in a few different ways. The clearest way the will of God is spoken of in Scripture is God's moral will. What I mean by moral will, it's God saying, you shall be holy. There shall not be a hint of sexual immorality upon you. You are to renew your mind daily. These are God's moral wills, things that we are to obey in faithfulness to him. So we're to obey God's moral will. But then there's God's sovereign will. God has established this earth. He spoke it into existence. And one day Jesus Christ will return. And there is nothing you or I can do to prevent Jesus from returning. God is going to do that. Christ will return. He'll come, up, come again. He'll establish his kingdom. And we're waiting for that day. We can't stop that. We can only get in line with it and live for it instead of living for our will. And the third will of God, uh, when we talk about God's will that people often want to know is, what's God's will for me? What does he want me to do? Who does he want me to marry? What job does he want me to have? Where does he want me to live? What's God's will for my individual life? And that's the one most people get consumed by. But brother and sister, if you focus on faithfully obeying God's moral will as revealed in Scripture, and you live for God's kingdom to come, you live for his purposes, I don't believe any of us will look up and say, God, I missed your individual will for my life. I couldn't figure out where you were leading me or guiding me. Now, if you want to know where God is leading you as an individual, you get in line with his moral will and his overarching sovereign will. And as you get in line with those, God will lead you right where he wants you to be. So here, we pray, not our will be done. That's what a lot of prayers are. Think about your prayer life. God, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. God, don't you want to do this? Don't you want to heal this person? Don't you want to change these things? And God views things very differently than we do. So when we come to God, we're not praying, God, get on my plan. It's us lining up with the will of God and getting on his plan. So here he says, your will be done, your kingdom come. On earth as it is in heaven, we want his will done. Third thing, God's provision. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. God, each day we need food. He doesn't pray, give us this week our daily bread, our, our weekly bread, or give us this month our monthly food. God, give us enough to last a lifetime. Today, God, today I need food. And right now, I know there's some of you sitting here and you feel it. You feel the hunger in your belly. You want to go eat. It's a reminder. God has made you dependent. You can't live without food. You can't make it very long without food. And God's made it where to operate the way you're supposed to. You need daily food. And hear this. To live the Christian life in relationship with God Almighty, the way that he desires for you, you need daily connection with him. 
Our prayer life is a daily thing. We're told to pray continually. So we pray that uh, God will provide today. God, just give me what I need today. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Give me what I need. Provide. We pray God's provision. And the reality is, is the greatest need we all have is for God himself. That's your greatest need. Most of us here have experienced the difficult, challenging times where we'll run to God quickly. And then maybe when times are good, we don't see our daily need for God. No, we need God in all the situations of our life. We need him continually. You see, I can't be the father, the husband, the pastor, the friend that God has called me to be if I'm not connected with God regularly. You see, many of us here, myself included, have experienced seasons of prayerlessness where prayer was not at the forefront of our lives, where we rarely prayed. And for the person who is not a who is not praying, that person is living out of their own strength, their own sufficiency, and pride and arrogance has gotten a hold of them. I've been guilty of that. And I praise God that he is patient and gracious and that he allows us to see the emptiness of living that way. We can't make it without prayer and we come daily to God. We can't live without him. You can't treat people and love people the way you're supposed to without being connected to God. I can look back at the prayerless seasons of my life and I see how I've hurt my wife. I see how I've hurt my children. I see how I've been a, failed to be a good, a, a, a faithful employee working at a place, how I failed to be a faithful pastor during those seasons where prayer and connection with God wasn't empowering me. No, we're to be a prayerful people. God will provide. Uh, the fourth thing we see, verse 12, God's pardon, God's pardon. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. They had a conference many years ago with a bunch of scholars in the Christian community, and they ask him this question, what's unique about Christianity? What makes it unique? And they struggled to come up with an answer. But there was one man who was running late. The great scholar and author C.S. Lewis had been caught in traffic, and when he arrived, they repeated the question, what makes Christianity unique? And he said, well, that's easy. The forgiveness of sin. That's the most unique thing about our faith. We are a forgiven people. We can celebrate and praise God. We've been forgiven of our sins. We have sinned greatly and God forgives us through Christ. So we celebrate God's pardon and because we've been forgiven, we can forgive. The fifth thing we see in this prayer is God's protection. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice he doesn't pray, lead us not into sin. He says, lead us not into temptation. It is the wise 
person. It's the wise Christian that evaluates their life and says, when am I tempted? Some, that temptation takes place on the internet. Maybe when you're alone. Or maybe late at night. Pray, God, lead me not into temptation. Keep me away from that situation so that I don't sin. For some, the temptation is when you're with a friend who likes to talk a little too much about other people in a non-God-honoring way. And you find that temptation to gossip taking over. No, the wise person realizes when are we tempted to sin? Not just, hey, I'm going to get as close to sin as I can. No, that's what an arrogant, prideful person says. I'm strong enough. Put me up close to sin and I can hack it. I can make it. I'm okay. It's the mature Christian that says, I hate sin and I'm going to run as far away from sin as I can. I'm going to stay away from the temptation that could cause me to sin. That's what Jesus prays. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, God, from evil. Because let me tell you, evil, the evil one wants to enslave you to sin. He wants you in bondage and slavery. Now, in verse 14, Jesus has finished the prayer. Now he's going to give some commentary back to the fourth thing we talked about, God's pardon. Listen to what he says. Now I want us just to take this a little bit at face value. This one stings a little bit. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, there's a temptation to lighten this. To want to make it not so heavy. But the reality is, the person who cannot forgive somebody else of an offense they've done against them hasn't tasted the grace of God in such a way that they recognize, God has forgiven me far more than I deserve far more than I could ever imagine. I've tasted forgiveness that I don't deserve, and because I've tasted forgiveness I don't deserve, I can extend it to others. We are to be a people who forgive. Now, as I say that, I realize there's some of you here that you've been hurt deeply. Somebody's done a great wrong and offense to you. They've sinned against you. They have not said they're wrong. They do not want to reconcile. But if you cannot forgive them, you will stay in bondage and slavery to that situation. No, we, because we have been forgiven, we can forgive. And as you forgive, you are set free. You see, a part of forgiveness is about that other person and loving them extending God's grace that you've tasted to them. But a big part of it is about you. God setting you free 
from someone who has brought great pain and heartache and sorrow into your life. We are to be a people who forgive. He doesn't put conditions on it. He doesn't say, forgive everybody unless they've done something really terrible to you. No, we're to be a people who offer forgiveness. That's why we pray on a daily basis. God, you've forgiven me. So forgive me the sins that I continue to commit because I know they're forgiven in Christ. I want to be in right relationship with you. And that relationship extends to others. Help me to forgive them. And there may be people in your life that you've forgiven, but you have to continually come back and remind yourself, I've forgiven them. I've forgiven them. I've forgiven them, and I'm going to live in light of that. Now, Jesus turns to talk about fasting. And I've done a very Western, a very American thing here. We like to ignore fasting. So I've given very little time to speak on fasting here. Fasting is something in the church in the West we largely pay little attention to. But know this. Jesus did not say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. It's assumed that the Christian will fast, and that in that fasting, God will work. Now, here in Ethiopia, probably the opposite. While in the West, fasting is completely ignored, almost completely ignored. Here in Ethiopia, someone told me there's more than 230 fasting days. Now, I don't know if that's accurate. If somebody knows, you can correct me or give me the right information after the sermon. But regardless, there's a lot of fasting days here in Ethiopia. There's a large emphasis within the Ethiopian culture on fasting. But there's two dangers my culture, Ethiopian culture, and many other cultures can fall into. One, to ignore it. Pretend like it's an if. I don't ever need to fast. And the other is to emphasize it in such a way that you check it off the box. I made it through physica. I didn't, I fast the whole time and I made it. And at the end, I ate a whole bunch and got sick. We check it off, I did it. That's not the point of it either. No, fasting has a purpose. He says, don't fast to be seen. Don't fast to be, draw attention to yourself. No, you fast to connect with your father. You see, as you fast, here's what you're doing. Most fasting is from food. That's the most direct um, thing it's speaking of here, though I believe it can extend to other things. Fasting. I need food to live. Every day I wake up and I wonder, when am I going to eat? Where am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? Where's the food coming from? And you set that aside and say, God, more than food, I need you. As my stomach is hungry, it reminds me that I need you. As my stomach is hungry, it reminds me that there's temptation and sin in my life that I cover up with by comfort. There's other things we can fast from. Fast from television. Fast from the internet. My children may need to fast from video games. Fast from Various things, because here's the point. 
You're looking at this saying, this wants to dominate my life. Food wants to dominate my life. Television wants to dominate my life. The internet wants to dominate my life. And I'm going to let go of them in such a way that when I'm drawn to go eat, when I'm drawn to go and watch television, I'm going to go, God, praise you. You are more satisfying than any of these things. Don't let these things get a grip on my heart and mind in such a way that I lose sight of you. No fasting, we loosen the grip of this world on our life and focus on God. So it's not a if you fast, it's a when you fast. That's something we're called to do. So Jesus pulls us to these spiritual disciplines aspects of the spiritual life, giving last week, praying and fasting this week. And notice what he says. He says, the last verse for today, verse 18, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, many people want to know what that reward is. Some would say, well, you're going to have crowns. God will give you crowns and you'll, that'll be your reward. I don't know. Here's the clearest reward that we get. And this is the reward I think we should focus on. The greatest reward is God himself. Jesus Christ is the great reward. As you pray, you get more of Christ. As you fast, you get more of Christ. As you give, you get more of Christ. As you loosen your grip on this world, you get more of Jesus. He is the great reward. You see, all other rewards we could think of, fail in comparison compared to Christ. They can't compete with him. He is our great reward. So I have a question for you, for us, for myself. Do you live as if Christ is the great reward far above anything else you can imagine? How is your prayer life I know there's many here whose prayer life is struggling. We have a God of grace and forgiveness. And your prayer life is not about I've done it. It's about connecting with God and Christ. That you're connected with Jesus, the great prize. What about fasting? Is that a part of your life? Is it done simply for show or for tradition? Or is it done to connect with God Almighty? God wants us to know Him, to walk closely with Him and draw near to Him. And I pray that our giving, our praying, and our fasting would be done in such a way that Jesus, the great prize, is at the forefront of our hearts and minds and what we live for. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we, we acknowledge that we as a people, we are drawn in broken, fallen ways to want to draw attention to ourselves, to be seen. There are many who have wanted to be seen for their religiosity. Lord, we confess that we have not prayed as we ought Lord, we, we know here today 
Even among the body of Christ, there are many who are living a prayerless life. Oh, Lord, they're, they're missing out on Christ. They're missing out on the great prize that you give us here and now and carries on into eternity. And Lord, there's many who fasting is viewed as maybe something strange or odd and therefore they don't do it. And for others, it's viewed as something traditional. Lord, may we fast in order to connect with you. May it not be an if, but a when that we connect with Jesus. So Lord, we thank you that we can be forgiven in Christ, that our sins are dealt with, that we can pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. May we live in light of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.